You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hello and welcome to the RSA Conference podcast. This is Britta Glade, Director of Content and Curation for RSA Conference. I've really been looking forward to today's podcast and the opportunity to chat with our esteemed guests about a topic that's risen to the top of every news feed, finding balance between safety and surveillance. Ownership of data and how personal information is used by organizations is a topic that has been under discussion for many years within our industry. At RSA Conference, our community of privacy professionals has increased significantly over the last five years, and we have dedicated privacy policy and law tracks that have explored many aspects in and around this issue. In the current pandemic, with governments and institutions trying to navigate how to open up safely, discussion around how to trace carriers is top of mind, and if the privacy given up short-term to achieve this could have longer-term negative ramifications. This is a rich, rich discussion with no easy, clear-cut answers, and I know that our guests will provide excellent insight and considerations. Eloise and Jules, please introduce yourselves to our audience. So I'm Eloise Graton. I'm a partner and the national co-leader for the Privacy and Data Protection Group at Borden-Ladner-Gervais. I'm based in Montreal, Canada. Um, Eloise undersells herself. Not only is that who she is, but she's perhaps one of the leading data protection lawyers in the world, certainly in Canada, definitely in North America, maybe in the world. So huge fan and, and real honor to be uh, here, even though we may disagree or debate a little. I'm the CEO of the Future Privacy Forum, Jules Polonetsky. Uh, we're a think tank that works with the chief privacy officers of 200 or so companies, academics, civil society, um, all the stakeholders who are trying to figure out how to um, advance useful ways to use data in ways that people like for research, for new features, uh, for innovative ideas, uh, without creating a surveillance society. So how do we get the benefits of data that I think we all like and want, the new tech, the new things that make our lives more convenient uh, without risking privacy? Excellent. Thank you both for being here with me this afternoon. Um, Jules, I'd like to address the first question to you. Um, can you start us off with a baseline definition and explanation of what contact tracing is, uh, the risks and the rewards? Well, contact tracing is something most of us never deal with because we're taught thinking about infectious diseases and, and how they spread throughout society. But it's a profession and a technique that exists today. Um, if you learn that you've got HIV status, if you uh, learn that you've got a, a disease that is on a list of highly contagious diseases, when Ebola was around and so forth, the public health authorities have an obligation to speak to you uh, once they are notified that you've got one of these uh, diseases and say, who were you in close contact with? Um, give us a list, please. Give us names. Give us phone numbers. We are going to contact those people. Um, we're going to call them up. You, you don't have a phone number? We're going to track them down um, because they have a right to know that they may be at risk. You may have put them in danger because of your physical relationship, because of your proximity. And if we don't want this to spread throughout society, we need to tell those people, um, uh, get them treated if, if they're exposed and, and make sure that they're not putting their families or the people they're in contact with at risk. So that's the, you know, manual 
traditional contact tracing. Um, and around the world, health departments are rushing to hire uh, people. Um, they, they use technology, they search, they use databases. Um, what I think has created even more interest and more concern uh, are efforts to leverage new technologies, your cell phone uh, and other methods to supplement the kind of work that the contact tracers are doing. Indeed. So, Eloise, I'd like you to build on that, knowing there's a lot of controversy in and around exactly the technology, the tracing apps that are being proposed in in various parts of the world. And even legal and privacy academics are definitely divided here. So, your thoughts, are contact tracing apps creepy or cool? Um, From your vantage point, what are some pros and cons here? Well, first of all, on the issue of manual tracing, I think uh, there are some limits. So it's very time-consuming. And when people, you know, are coming back from traveling, maybe they interacted with some people they don't know. In some cases, when the lockdown is lifted, I'm based in Montreal, we're still under lockdown. But once that's off, people are going to be interacting with tons of people. So it's very... um, it's a time-sensitive work that health authorities have to undertake, and it's uh, it, sometimes it's difficult for people to be able to trace back everyone they were in contact with. So in this context, I think it's, uh, it's definitely interesting to consider uh, using technologies. So I think tracing apps are cool if I had to pick. You know, the short answer is it depends whether they're, they're, they're cool or, or creepy, but if I had to pick one, I would definitely say that they're cool. And there are different types of tracing apps out there, and some of them are more intrusive than others. Uh, So in some cases, these apps are promoted by the government. So it's the government kind of tracking people. So um, I think some of these apps uh, receive a a bad reputation because of this, thinking, okay, the government is going to know where I'm going, who I'm hanging out with. Um, And locations have have meaning, so um, could be uh, very uh, intrusive. At the same time, I think there's a way to do this that could be uh, quite useful. And no one's claiming that these apps will solve everything. I think it's still a tool that can be useful if done properly. So by properly, what I mean is an app that is based on consent, you know, where users can download it strictly on a voluntary basis. People have an issue when uh, these apps are imposed of them or they're forced. You know, that, that, that's something that, that bothers them. Another one is um, making sure that um, as, as much as possible, non-identifying or aggregated data is used. Uh, so in some cases, you know, some of these apps um, are using data encrypted at the device level. Uh, so much less intrusive and the information that flows outside of the device is pseudonymized or anonymized, um, so less privacy issues, definitely. And also, I think uh, one big concern for for, for people is what type of data will be shared with government authorities. So at the end of the day, maybe uh, the government doesn't need to know who's where and, you know, who, who they're in contact with. What they need to know is that people are getting the right advice um, that they are able to uh, take the right decision, you know, am I at risk? You know, getting the information that, you know, maybe my phone was in proximity to another phone and then that person was infected. So, um, you know, you can reach out to this person more efficiently using technology if, of course, all these people have downloaded these apps. So these apps are not perfect, 
Um, a lot of people are criticizing their efficiency, but I still think um, that they're cool. So that's my take on it. So I want to um, distinguish, if I can, between yes, please. contact tracing apps and exposure notification apps. Right? So contact tracers in some countries, their health departments, their governments, have built apps that they have either uh, required or encouraged people to download. And the purpose of these apps is to give the health department, to give the contact tracers, more information to better do their job. So if you have been exposed, these apps are going to give your location history to the health department. They're going to give, um, many of us have used the feature where you can see your location pass, right? Uh, Android and iOS phones will, will show you your location history. Uh, it's a bit clunky, but you can even download that information, right? Israel was actually posting people's location history earlier on. Um, they've done a pretty good job at staying ahead of, uh, you know, of the curve and, and our, our reopening and, and so forth. But one of the things they did, uh, and a few other countries did this as well, is they would call you in. And they say, give us your phone. We're going to download your location. And then they would post, here is, you know, the path uh, that this infected person, number 85, and, and for a while they were actually successfully tracking every single person. I think they may have, you know, even done that all throughout. Um, but they would post it and say, uh, if you were at this grocery store between, you know, 340 and 345, uh, you will have been in the same, you know, space as COVID victim number 99 you should self-quarantine for two weeks. So that's leveraging the fact that you have a tracker in your pocket that is already collecting information because of uh, your, your location likely being turned on uh, or a new app that you are downloading that is intentionally providing this information to help the contact tracers do a better job. So the government is getting the data. And in some countries, that is very scary because of uh, the, how they might put the lives of dissidents at risk or because we might not be comfortable that the government has uh, real rules to protect and keep the data confidential. But th this has been, you know, one technique. Then let me suggest that there's something different called exposure notification. And that leverages the fact that um, some of us are going to learn that we have had a diagnosis if we sat at a restaurant, we don't know the name of the people at the table who were sitting uh, right near us. Uh, hopefully, as things reopen, you know, uh, the, these things will be physically distanced. But, you know, the reality is there are people waiting online today to, to buy groceries. There, there are people, you know, sitting in restaurants. There are people who will be in proximity, uh, maybe in an elevator, maybe in, in, in some, you know, spot. And we are carrying phones. And our phones can be aware of other devices, right? Anybody who's looked at uh, their Wi-Fi settings, right, sees that their phone is, you know, seeing and uh, listing uh, nearby Wi-Fi networks. And similarly, if you've, you know, connected your device to uh, something via Bluetooth, uh, you can see how your phone uh, is uh, scanning and displaying to you the different Bluetooth MAC addresses. So if you want to, we are seeing uh, apps that leverage the Bluetooth capability of your phone. Um, and since 
your phone can log these nearby Bluetooth addresses, my phone can be aware of the other phones that come in contact with me. And so some of these apps started leveraging this, building uh, apps that took advantage of this proximity, not knowing your location. We've talked about how location can really reveal something sensitive in in one of the uh, Asian countries, the the um, locations of like nightclubs and, and, and different clubs that, you know, could, could have embarrassed people uh, and, and give away their, their sexuality and so forth, you know, ended up, you know, becoming known in, in ways that, you know, could have been very dangerous. Uh, here, we're not logging your location with one of these apps. We're just listing the Bluetooth addresses, randomized and so forth, of the other devices. And, and this is similar to what Apple and Google are doing. So we can talk a bit more about that. Yeah, it's interesting that that, and I appreciate that that the nuanced differences between those two, which which is significant. Um, and I want to pull on that thread a little bit further with you, Eloise. So, thinking about some of the steps that companies have to put in place pertaining to customers as well as employees. You know, there's things being done. You know, temperature checks, uh, the contact tracing that we've talked about, uh, thermal cameras, COVID nineteen tests in some cases, blood tests, pulse ox. Um, is it ever acceptable for businesses to collect this sort of sensitive health information, um, in some cases using these new technologies, to determine if a customer can enter a facility or travel? How, how do we approach this? The thing is that businesses are generally required to preserve the health and safety of their employees, um, and they're expected to provide a safe environment for customers. So. I think that they are usually justified in collecting information uh, relating to uh, their employees or customers' exposure risk to COVID before they enter their premises. I think it's acceptable, but again, it depends how it's done. Um, so, uh, as you noted, many businesses are considering conducting new forms of monitoring. So, in some cases, they're using existing technology. So, for example, I've seen companies using CCTV cameras to ensure that employees are, wear- are wearing masks or in some cases, new types of technologies, and yes, the thermal cameras to collect the, the temperature of customers. Um, I, I've also seen using access cards to create a contact tracing network within the workplace. To make sure that businesses are doing it uh, the proper way, I think they need to, to think about these issues, kind of put together the business case, and prepare a privacy impact assessment which is a process that helps determine whether a given project that would involve the collection of sensitive information, location, and and so on, is acceptable within the relevant privacy framework. So um, it's a process that's necessary to determine if um, there's a legitimate business need to collect, use uh, personal information, um, what are the privacy risks, and how these risks should be addressed and mitigated down to, to an acceptable level. So given that someone's image qualifies as personal information, um, we're talking about personal health information, you know, when we're talking about testing and blood test um, location information, as we discussed, is usually considered as sensitive information. So businesses um, have to exercise caution and limit uh, their monitoring to to really to what is necessary. So one of the challenge is, uh, in some cases, the effectiveness of the method in some cases, the reliability of the technology used. So um, they have to take these uh, issues into account and um, kind of weight the benefits to be gained from the, from the practice against the impact 
uh, that the practice may have on the privacy rights of individuals. Um, you should also consider, you know, maybe there are less privacy-intrusive alternatives out there that may achieve the same goal. So they kind of have to, uh, you know, come to balance these things and come to a, an assessment and, and a way to implement a new practice um, that takes into account uh, the privacy impact for, for customers or employees. There's a right way to do everything, basically. Sure. And there's a right way in the short term and a, and a potential challenge to the long term, right, with where that information could go, what's what's done with it. So it's a good framework. Um, so, Jules, let's layer in yet another COVID-19 element to this discussion we're having, and that's the large number of employees that are working from home. Um, you know, in the environments, as publicly uh, stated, many companies are indicating they're going to persist with this work-from-home situation. It's, it's working. Hey, let's continue. So as more of us work from home, potentially long-term, what kinds of issues may arise from a privacy standpoint there regarding employees? Well, we're already seeing companies thinking about what they need to do to monitor their workforce. Um, you know, I might understand that there's monitoring going on in my office, People are often using a personal device uh, at home, um, and the idea that that would be monitored in the same way uh, is certainly creating concerns. If I'm paying attention to how long you're at your computer, um, if I'm uh, taking a test, the whole proctoring uh, that uh, uh, schools and universities and, and even employers uh, are doing to ensure you're paying attention. Some of the um, video conferencing software um, has, you know, the ability for, and this is something that Zoom uh, had kind of messed up a bit and, and now I think is fixed, um, the the host of the call can know whether you are paying attention. They know whether you have the screen open in the foreground, right? So if you do like my uh, teen son does, he's taking <laughs> his classes uh, remote, um, and I walk in and he's playing, you know, Animal Crossing and... Um, uh, he's got his, you know, switch, and he's keeping an eye on that, uh, and that's fine because he can multitask. But on his computer, while he's supposed to be on the Zoom call, he has another game going, right? And I'm like, "Why aren't you on your class?" And he says, "I am, I am." Shh. And it turns out, you know, he's got the camera on. He's minimized it, and in addition to, you know, taking care of his turnips uh, at Animal Crossing, he's he's got a game on his thing, and and the teacher has no no clue, right? And I said, "Did you know?" The administrator can know whether that screen is on in the foreground. And, um, you know, now you get a notice that that's the case. And, and I understand why, right? My, you've got younger kids. Uh, you're teaching a third-grade class. Uh, everyone's going to be playing the latest game. And so I understand, you know, why teachers may want to know whether students are actually looking at the screen instead of just sitting in front of the camera. But, you know, if you do that to employees uh, or you do that without them being aware, uh, you can start seeing the issues. Uh, but then there are even complicated things. Most of us with home printers, uh, we're all using um, cloud printing services. A lot of us don't even know that if I print from my phone, for instance, to my um, uh, nearby Wi-Fi printer, um, I'm using, you know, the Brother or the Epson or, or the printer app, um, and that's not sending it, you know, beaming it from my phone to my uh, printer. It's sending it to a cloud printing service. Now, confidential documents, you know, employee stuff, that's not necessarily, you know, acceptable. Um, and so we're starting to see security teams um, trying to figure out how to 
do the diligence they need to be doing on, you know, networks and endpoints when people are accessing from a much wider range. I mean, you know, you might walk through a workplace and uh, warn employees that, you know, their computer screens shouldn't be visible from the uh, the waiting area or, you know, to, to places where um, guests are, are walking through. Um, what do you tell employees uh, who are working from home, right? Make sure your spouse can't see your computer. Oh, are you working from, you know, a coffee shop? Uh, so so the, the challenges of working remote, I think, are bringing in a whole collection of challenging issues. Um, I'll just add a note on, at least talked about thermal scans and so forth. I'm a little bit worried. We're going to have these, right? We have these already. In, in uh, Even the Apple stores this week started doing thermal scanning. Um, a lot of workplaces um, that are, you know, up and operating with essential workers are doing temperature checks. Obviously, lots of people don't have a temperature, and you can see us uh, feeling, you know, complacent, um, thinking that temperature screening, you know, is keeping us safe. It's, it's one, you know, one element, um, but lots of people are asymptomatic, as we know. Another concern is um, pregnant women sometimes run a higher temperature, right? People who maybe bike to work have a higher temperature. Um, uh, athletes sometimes run at a higher temperature. So I'm a bit worried about, you know, the inequities that, that may yeah. end up. Yeah. Yeah, that may result as well. So I do think we have to really anticipate how people are going to be disadvantaged um, by these technologies so that they don't fall even more harshly on certain classes of society. Indeed. Um, Elise, I want to return back to something that you had said about how data is going to be used. Um, so we, we're talking about employers and a responsibility to protecting employees um, using a variety of methods. What are the implications that you might be worried about if some of these initiatives, which again, start in a good place, start with the goal of keeping everyone safe, keeping everyone healthy to the best of our ability, but not knowing how exactly the government could potentially use that data, some of it, you know, legitimately or potentially for non-legitimate purposes. What, what, what role do employers need to be playing there? On the issue of, you know, tracking employees, um, the concern is that down the line this will normalize workplace surveillance um, and that this type of digital supervision will persist when workers return to, to, to offices. Um, so that, that's a, a big concern. And by the way, some of these uh, monitoring uh, practices will probably be illegal in Canada. You can't monitor employees, you know, all the time. Um, through some of, of the technologies that I've seen, you know, taking a, a tracking mouse movements, a keyboard strokes, and re- recording web page visited, and uh, forcing the employee to, to download a phone app to, to, you know, track their whereabouts. All these things probably, you know, be, be illegal. What role does the, the employer have to play? Well, at the end of the day, because they collect information about their employees, so they are aware. In some cases, they're testing them. Um, so in, in, in many cases, they uh, are being requested by health authorities to report back this information to make sure that the government is, is keeping track. Um, so they do have a role to play. Do they have uh, to be diligent and implement measures, um, you know, even if these measures are very costly or uh, counterproductive? 
there's some some gray zones basically on, on these issues, you know. So some clients are saying, okay, I can implement these technologies, uh, which will help me uh, detect uh, or test employees, um, but these tests are very expensive. Do I have to? Do I have this obligation? Do I have to report to the government? Do I have to them to wait for them to 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 reach out to us? Um, so there's a lot of uh, new questions that are arising, and it's not always clear. There's a lot of gray zones. There's so, you know, there's so has much a, gray. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, Canada has a, you know, a pretty good, it maybe needs an update, but has a effective privacy law um, in the U.S. and then obviously in many other countries around the world. Um, almost all democratic countries, except for the U.S., actually have a comprehensive privacy law. In the U.S., we don't have a comprehensive privacy law, and so you can see why people might be worried, well, what's going to happen to this data, who, who's going to use it? Is the government going to get it? Um, you know, for her, the workplace, we, we do have protections, but they're um, more along the lines of disability act protections or uh, how you uh, need to be careful about discrimination. The EOC, you know, in the U.S. Uh, has applicable rules, but we don't have a general privacy law. Tragically, uh, there have been a couple of recent proposals in the Senate Commerce Committee and beyond to try to rush in sort of COVID emergency privacy rules, but it's not clear if they'll uh, pass or not. But that's why both Apple and Google, and this has been very contentious, um, they've opened up a deeper hook into their devices. They've opened up new APIs. Um, they, they call them exposure notification APIs. Only health departments, not employers, not any other app, only health departments can create apps or, or you know, hire uh, apps uh, that will have access to this deeper ability to use Bluetooth. Usually, uh, you've got to have your phone on uh, for your Bluetooth to be scanning. Usually, your phone won't just run and scan and scan and, and, and broadcast uh, Bluetooth. That would both run it down as well as create a privacy issue. And so they've um, just this week, as, as we speak here, the third week in, uh, in, uh, in May, they've just launched this API, and um, a number of countries uh, are building apps. None at this moment have yet been um, uh, launched, uh, but you expect to see them showing up in the App Store, um, and only a health department. So the goal is that there are not many of these, because most of these apps, if, if dozens of different ones you know, are out there, it will be confusing, and, and we need them to be interoperable. So the goal will be to have one per state, one per country, so that everybody is, you know, using the same compatible app. Uh, and this way, if you get a diagnosis, uh, the health department or your, your medical uh, uh, professional will be able to give you a code that then triggers your phone to communicate in a way that all the other phones that have been in proximity to you are able to pull down that information and, and realize that they have now been you know, exposed, and, and you might want to take some precautions, maybe self-quarantine, or maybe don't go visit the, your grandparents that week, or, or you know, depending on uh, what the uh, the risk is, you know, uh, get, get tested and, and make sure that you're uh, you're safe. Uh, but they're only allowing health departments to do this because of the concern that this could be misused and that no other information is allowed to be collected. You can't collect uh, people's location. Uh, you can't collect other information for concern that governments that could endanger their own citizens aren't able to abuse these APIs. In terms of legitimate uses, uh, you know, it's, 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 a, it's our first pandemic, you know, so gaining knowledge of the virus, understanding how the disease is spreading, uh, the hot zones, how to limit the risk of the 
the, the virus spreading further? Um, and, you know, where should they deploy resources and do some testing? So all this is definitely legitimate. In terms of less legitimate uses, probably can think of keeping health information that they don't need, um, you know, building files, dossiers about um, each individual, um, including sensitive information about them, their health problems, their network, you know, contact tracing, kind of disclose who you, who you hang out with, who you live with, and their movements, geolocation information. So that can also reveal someone's interest. Um, so keeping this information just in case, um, you know, with no sunset clause, that's the concern because then this information would be vulnerable to, to cyber attacks. Uh, it could be used to discriminate them in certain situations. They could refuse to allow certain people to access certain programs based on the information that they have. Um, so the, I, can, I think that's the, the, the concern at, at the end of the day, you know, the misuse of the information and the fact that it, it would be vulnerable because it exists. Even legitimate use when it comes to an employer sometimes can be very challenging in the U.S., right? Because we don't have a great safety net. And so if you're sent home, it could mean that you don't get to eat, right? It means you uh, don't get paid. And so we're sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place. Um, you know, if legitimate use by the employer is, well, sorry, don't come in uh, because you could be at higher risk, we're going to have employees who, you know, unless they feel sick, uh, assume they're okay. Oh, I was exposed, but I, I might not be at risk. I was just exposed, right? Like, I'm fine. But I, I, as long as I feel fine, I'm not going to get tested. So I'm going to go to work, uh, and then I'm going to spread, you know, the disease. But on the other hand, I don't go to work, then I may not be paid, and others are going to be working. And so, so you know, when you think about these issues, we're talking about it in terms of privacy, it's actually mostly not about privacy because we kind of get that there's a lot of legitimate uses here. The problem is the power and the imbalance and the inequity, um, you know, are the only people who are going to be sent home, uh, poor people who are forced to go through this and the rest of us will work remote and so it doesn't really affect us. You know, that's the challenge, that we're, we're using knowledge about people in ways that, that we, we may need to do to fight the pandemic, but since we don't have the safety net, we're throwing some people into hunger and into, um, uh, you know, into, into you lose your job, while others can more easily be accommodated and work remote. That's the problem. It's, it's the power dynamic and the inequities in society that this data and these data points may be sorting us into. And that's really what ends up being unfair. If we address some of those, we'd be a bit more comfortable that you know, oh, of course, okay, sorry, go test me, I'll, I'll have to go home, that's no big deal, right, I'm going to get paid. That's what we have to solve. And until we solve that, no matter how much technology and how many, you know, rules we put around it, we're still going to have people really upset or feeling like they're treated unfairly. So the age-old problem of boiling down to trust. <laughs> we need to tr trust why it's being gathered, trust how it's being used, um, which is, yeah, a challenge. Um, th this has been an incredibly interesting conversation, and I think back to some of the early, air quote early, this was only a couple months ago, of, you know, when data was emerging, kind of aggregating, um, you know, from the temperature scanners that were being used and the ability to use that predictively to predict hotspots, the, you know, the cell phone tracking of um, the spring breakers in, in Florida and looking at using that to predictively anticipate hotspots and such. There's been some very interesting 
content data aggregation that's risen up, presenting some interesting use cases. Um, I'd like to end with a final question for both of you. What are the most important guiding principles on this topic that you'd suggest individuals, so all of us as, as an individual, not as an employer, not as the government, but individually, what should we be keeping in mind in the coming 12 months? What should we be most concerned about or perhaps um, diligent about? The biggest concern the, from a privacy perspective is whether measures that we are putting in place, whether these, these measures will normalize surveillance. You know, if the pandemic lasts for a very long time, I think that's the danger. So the average citizen or employee will become accustomed to the surveillance in general. And this is uh, why all type of surveillance programs must be reevaluated periodically. And I'm talking about the, the programs, you know, the thermal cameras used from, by businesses, uh, the testing done by, by employers. I'm talking about the, the programs, the contact tracing programs and, and other uh, type of surveillance measures used by the government. All these programs must be um, reevaluated probably every month to make sure that they still make sense and they still serve a purpose. And the day that they no longer serve a purpose, they should be decommissioned immediately. So that's the biggest concern that I have with the, the surveillance that, that's taking place um, over uh, the, the last couple of months. Look, for lots of folks listening who maybe work in tech, um, I think there was an early uh, feeling, how can we help, right? We want to help. Um, uh, here's the innovative thing we could do. We have this kind of data. We have that kind of data. And this is a time when tech or people who work with data should follow. This is a complicated area, what it takes to deal with the spread of disease, the public health decisions. We need to be saying to the epidemiologists, to the experts, what do you need that we can do to be helpful um, as opposed to here's our technology uh, oh, it ought to be good for that. The, the mistakes that end up being made are, you know, your data may not be fit for that purpose. We saw problems in the Ebola and uh, H1N1 uh, area where, for instance, companies that had location data, you know, would put out uh, reports, put out information with which people relied on. But the reality is what an epidemiologist thinks about when they think of distance and exposure may be very different than what a phone being aware because of maybe cell tower level data uh, of another phone. Um, it, it's really hard to make sure that your data is fit for purpose. Um, look how hard companies have worked, you know, to get the data right to do what they actually intend to do. And even then, there's always debates and mistakes and, and confusion um, to all of a sudden think that you can repurpose it because it's data uh, for a very different discipline and a very different purpose without doing a lot of work to really explain what is in your data set and um, what the challenges are and um, is your data representative, what are the flaws in it that need to be understood. So um, we need to let down our, our, our sort of sense of, of genius and pride and, and sort of hubris and recognize that we don't know a lot of answers here, that there are people who have made a lifetime and a career of studying and who, who we need to be guided by, and we need to say, how can we help you get what you need? There are supply chain problems. Where can our technology, you know, fit in? Where can our data uh, fit in? I, I would, however, also say that many of our normal feelings, like I don't want to give away that data, I think we do have a collective responsibility here. We need to know what works. This is going to happen again and again. 
right? There are going to be additional waves, and uh, we do need researchers understanding and learning. Uh, you know, if, we, if you had a terrible disease and, and people were working on trying to cure you, you, you presumably would want the learning from, you know, your particular challenge to be used to, to help others, um, uh, that if a certain treatment worked. Um, and here we are collectively being experimented on to see what works, what measures work. And so uh, I'm going to be a little more optimistic here and say we've got a collective responsibility. If you live in a democratic country, even though we kind of all have issues with our, our government um, right now, there's this national effort to, to try to come together. And so I'd urge people to, to download one of the uh, exposure notification apps when they become available. Um, if I can do something to let people know, should I, God forbid, become you know, impacted so that they can take cautions. And I certainly want to know. Uh, I live with uh, uh, a uh, immunocompromised member of the family. I have elderly relatives nearby. Um, I'd like to get an alert, even if it's very low risk that I was exposed, but that, that I was near somebody for a certain period of time. Uh, maybe I won't go visit my in-laws. Not just an excuse not to visit them. I love them. Um, but, you know, maybe I won't visit them, you know, elderly because I've been learned that I've had higher risk. So anyway, there, privacy means keeping data private, but privacy also means ensuring that it goes to the right people for the right purposes when there is a ethical way for data to be used. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, the theme of together, together, which is which is you know permeated all of our all of our minds for the last couple months, um, down to you know what we're doing individually. Um, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much. You know the ideas around uh, you know consent being done properly, looking at how data is being aggregated and utilized, um, looking at you know how how is it being held, how long is it being held, and then yeah, the individual opportunity because it is it's it's truly an opportunity. I dare say an obligation. Um, that each of us has here to help the world heal. Um, thank you both for being our guests today. Um, thank you, listeners, for tuning in. And from RSA Conference, we look forward to hopefully gathering together with you again soon. Thanks, all. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.